Good afternoon and a very happy new year to you all. I hope everyone had a chance to relax with family and friends over the past few weeks. And if you were able to tune out of the markets over the holidays, don't you worry, our UBS Chief Investment Office is here to catch you up on anything you may have missed. And more importantly, to share our views on 2023 and how to position portfolios. So 2022 was one of the most significant years for investors in quite some time. Central banks shifted from a historically accommodative stance to a historically aggressive pace of tightening. Decades of stability in Europe were shattered and the effects of the pandemic still lingered as China's economy buckled under its zero COVID policy. All of this led to extreme market volatility as stocks and bonds both fell with commodities and the US dollar being among the few assets ending the year in positive territory. Global stocks rebounded in the fourth quarter, but overall it's clear we have entered a new economic, geopolitical and market regime. Now looking ahead, central banks remain hawkish on inflation with even the Bank of Japan surprising in December as it eased its yield curve control policy. The war in Ukraine remains a wild card and China's growth outlook remains a key question as it looks to accelerate its reopening. So overall, many of the key drivers to watch are still similar, but the market attention has shifted with a greater focus on growth over inflation and on when Fed will start easing as opposed to the amount of tightening. Now, with all that being said, we do not believe 2023 will be a year to sit on the sidelines while we wait clarity on the global outlook. In fact, with yields now higher, valuations more reasonable, and inflection points likely coming in Fed policy and growth, we believe investors should look for emerging opportunities while preserving capital at the same time. So to help us sort through this all, joining me are Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for CIO Americas, and David Lefkowitz, Head of Equities. Welcome, Jason and David. I hope you had a restful and fun holidays before we buckle up again for uh, 2023. And as a reminder, we will be taking questions at the end of the conversation. So please click on the ask a question tab at the bottom of your screens. All right, so um, Jason, I think I want to start with you. Uh, as I already mentioned, right, it's clear the market focus has shifted from inflation concerns to growth concerns. So as we start the new year, uh, can you walk us through the current state of the economy and what the latest data is telling us? So it's interesting. If you look at the data, it's a bit of a mixed bag. There's certainly parts of the economy, like the housing sector, uh, the manufacturing sector, that if not are in recession are kind of really kind of bordering on that. But then you go to the services part of the economy, it's holding up you know, reasonably well. And even data on consumer spending that we have into the fourth quarter suggests consumers are still spending. They're dipping in their savings to do it, but they're still at this point in spending. So it's a kind of a mixed story. One of the key components, though, for the outlook is what happens in the labor market. And the data that we're getting even this morning 
you know, in terms of new job growth, unemployment claims, suggests there's not really much weakening overall in the labor market thus far. Uh, we get the December payrolls report tomorrow morning. That's going to be closely watched, especially the average hourly earnings, because that's a key component of the inflation story. So until the labor market kind of weakens or cracks to some extent, it gets more imbalanced. I think the Fed is still kind of on, on a hiking path. So that's kind of probably the most critical element. But if you kind of step back and look at the overall trends, a lot of the leading indicators say, you know, the economy is going to roll over. Um, you know, credit conditions are getting tighter. The impact of Fed hikes last year are going to start to impact the economy. So all this suggests we're headed towards probably a mild recession. I think that's kind of the most likely outcome. Um, but there's a lot of uncertainty, and we can go a different directions at this point in time. So it's, we're going in that direction, but I think the paths can remain varied at this point in time. Okay. Uh, I mean, I guess in housing and manufacturing, we are already seeing, like, in a, in a way, a recession, but it's really the part about where people are spending for services uh, yet to see. Um, and so, Jason, maybe, you know, the big question then is um, what this all means for Fed, right? When and at what level should we expect them to stop uh, hiking rates this year? And perhaps, even more importantly, for the markets, right, when and how much could we see easing? So let's start maybe with what the Fed is telling us and what the market's price, and then we can say, well, how do we think that, where do we differ? So the Fed is basically saying they expect to hike, uh, you know, well, 75 more basis points. That's a question of the exact timing, uh, but that's sort of where the Fed is. The market's basically pricing in essentially two and a half more hikes around, let's say, 65 basis points, so a little bit more perhaps, uh, you know, dovish than what the Fed is saying. I think for our expectations, that seems reasonable, uh, and that we're going to get at least 25 basis points on February 1, the next time they meet. Uh, it could be 50. The market is sort of, you know, basically a coin toss between those two outcomes. Uh, another 25 basis points in March. I think the more interesting question to some extent is, like, when is the Fed really going to be done on the hikes because I think March or February and March are very likely. The market is pricing though, the Fed's not really done until the June time frame. If they are still hiking until May, what it's also kind of telling me is that the inflation story hasn't really improved. The labor market is probably still holding up reasonably well, which means the Fed feels they can hike rates without really impacting the economy. At least it hasn't been you know, hurt that much. So it's not just the magnitude, but it's sort of the timing of how soon they're done that kind of, kind of matters. Uh, I think that leads into the question of like, when could the Fed cut rates? Again, if you look at what the Fed's telling us, we had the December FOMC minutes yesterday. There are 18 members. Not one person thinks the Fed's going to cut rates this year. Then if you look at market pricing, it has about 45 basis points of rate cuts this year, so one and a half cuts, mostly in the fourth quarter. I think that's somewhere in between those two is probably like kind of the realistic, maybe December they cut. In order for them to cut much earlier than that, I think something has to probably really be going wrong, meaning the economy has to be slowing significantly. Uh, the unemployment rate has to be going up a lot. So the Fed feels like, oh, clearly inflation is going to fall. Now we're suffering on the, on the kind of the, the, the employment part of our mandate. They'll look to cut. So to me, if the Fed's cutting earlier this year, like earlier than, say, December or maybe October, it means the economy is really slowed down sharply, and it's probably a worse economic environment, like a harder landing than we anticipate. Um, but I think so right now, that's not our base case, which means maybe by the end of the year, but I think, you know, that's not, um, not much earlier than that. Okay, thank you. And I think what's important is, I mean, we know that the market bottoms before a lot of other things bottom, before GDP bottoms, before, um, you know, a number of other variables. So I think it's going to be key when we have, um, you know, that clarity on um, when, when the Fed is actually 
pivoting to be able to um, call and see an inflection point in the markets. Um, David, you know, I want to turn to you. Um, you know, as we all know, last year was a tough one for uh, investors investing in U.S. equities, not only because the U.S. equities performance was so challenging, but there was also no fixed income support to ease the pain of the equity investors uh, here. But maybe we turn that page in the new year. Uh, what should our clients expect in terms of U.S. equity outlook this year? And when can we start to see a more sustainable point? I guess I gave away a little bit about the Fed, but there are obviously other variables that I'm sure you're looking at. Yep. Yeah, so before we turn to the outlook for this year, I wanted to review a little bit about what happened last year. So last year, it was a challenging year in, in U.S. equities. Uh, the S&P 500 was down 18%, and it was even worse for the NASDAQ, down 33%. So a really challenging year, uh, you know, definitely uh, an outlier in terms of performance. Um, I think it's important to focus on what drove that. Um, most, I would say the vast majority of the decline in equities that we saw last year was because of these higher interest rates uh, and that depressed valuations. Um, and, and, and obviously that was driven by the inflation story. I think, so what does this all mean for, go, for, for 2023? I think the good news is that inflation looks like it's peaking and beginning to come down. The Fed is getting, as Jason was just talking about, the Fed is getting to the later stages of its, of its rate hiking cycle. So I think we're not gonna see the same type of pressure on valuations that we saw in 2022. The problem though is that we know that monetary policy works with a lag. And, and I think what we're gonna be faced with this year is more pressure on corporate profits. Uh, so just to put a little bit of more in a fine point on that, we're looking for profits to come down, to actually contract in 2023. Not, not, not by a lot, but 4%. Um, now that stands in contrast to the bottom-up consensus, which is still has 5% earnings growth. So if we do see these negative earnings revisions, I think that's going to it's going, to be a, it's going to be a headwind, and it's going to prevent the market from having a sustainable rally. So bottom line, we're looking for sort of flattish markets with some volatility. I would also highlight, though, look, there still are downside risks if we do enter a full-blown recession, as Jason was sort of saying, this harder landing. You know, in that, in that sort of full-blown recession scenario, we could see markets fall by 15% from where we are today. So I think investors have to be at least prepared for that. So, um, and, and then to, to your question on, you know, when can things get better? You know, look, what stocks really like is a reacceleration in economic activity and in corporate profit growth. So that could happen, you know, sort of the bad way that could happen is that we enter a recession and then that's gonna be a great buying opportunity because then we know we'll come out the other side. Uh, it also could come if the Fed does start cutting interest rates, if we have a soft landing and the Fed starts cutting interest rates because inflation is, is no longer a problem, we could start to anticipate some better uh, economic activity, better corporate profit growth in, you know, in, in the quarters ahead into 2024. Uh, so uh, it, it's going to be, that's going to be the key. When, when do we see a potential for a reacceleration in the economy? Um, and there, as Jason was saying, there's a couple ways this, this could play out, and we're watching this very closely. Okay. So not only are we seeing, from an economic perspective, a shift from inflation to growth, but now the drivers of the market is going to be different as opposed to multiple contraction, its earnings decline. Um, are you seeing more multiple contraction from here or it's, it's like really just a focus on earnings, I'm assuming? I, yeah, I, I think the biggest driver is going to be earnings. I, I think, you know, 
just for comparison, a year ago, the P-E ratio on the S&P 500 was in the low 20s. Now we're, we're in the mid, mid 16 and a half, roughly, right? So we, we've seen a much, we have a much better valuation backdrop than we did a year ago. But if we do see earnings coming down, um, you know, that could, that could also lead to a little bit of multiple contraction. But we're not, that, we're not looking for much of that in our base case. Okay. So if we are broadly expecting ret uh, flat returns for S&P, there's got to be some part of the market uh, that should still fare better than others. Um, so within equities, uh, where should investors be uh, tilting their allocations towards? Yeah, so let me, let me start on, on a, from a sector perspective. You know, maybe just a, a brief comment about last year. We saw incredible dispersion from a sector perspective. So the energy sector was up 65% in a year when the S&P was down 18. Uh, energy was a, by far the standout performer. The, the sort of techier parts of, of uh, the market were down about 35%. If you look at discretionary uh, tech and, and communication services. Um, so as we, as, again, from a sector perspective, for, we're, we're still playing defense at this point, uh, meaning you know, we want to try to protect portfolios. So that, that leads us to a preference for consumer staples and healthcare. These are two sectors that are less correlated with the economy. If we do slip into that full-blown recession, those sectors will hold up better. And, but I would still highlight the energy sector. It had a great year last year, as we just discussed, but um, you know, the earnings are really coming through for energy. And, and if you look at the valuations, the free cash flow yield on the energy sector is about 10%, and companies are returning the vast majority of that cash to shareholders. And then I would also just highlight oil prices have come down quite a bit. The risk reward here on oil, it seems like uh, there's, there's more upside potential for oil prices, especially as China reopens, uh, than there is downside potential. So that's another area. I think energy is still a good place to be. Now, from a, from a style perspective, We've had a preference for value over growth for almost two years now. Um, and, and I think that still makes sense. If you look at where some of the, the COVID excesses were, you know, some of the over-earning that, that we saw early in the pandemic recovery was really in the growth area of the market. And now we're on the other side of that. And, and we're, seeing, you know, we're seeing tech companies announce layoffs and things like that. It just speaks to with the more challenging environment for growth companies. And, and I think we're still, we're still just probably is still more of that to go. So I would stick with value. And growth stocks are getting, are getting more reasonably valued. That's the good news. But we don't think that we're, we're quite there yet in terms of uh, you know, enough, enough valuation support and enough, enough of a line of sight for an improvement in earnings that, that it makes sense to, to go overweight. Uh, one area I would keep on the radar screen is small caps. They're very cheap. We're, we're neutral on small and mid versus large at the moment, but they're very cheap. Once the yield curve starts to uh, steepen, in other words, if the two-year Treasury yield starts coming down, that could be a that is usually a very good signal to start getting back into small and mid caps to, as it, to an overweight position. We're watching that closely, and then from thematically, 
you know, I, I think you want to focus on quality. Um, and there's also other pockets of, 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 of uh, the market that should do okay. The, uh, companies that focus on security, whether it be uh, defense spending, whether it be cybersecurity, energy security, those have actually produced positive returns. We think they, those, those can continue. There's companies related to the infrastructure spending that is just beginning to flow. Uh, those companies should see some nice earnings growth. So there are small pockets of the economy that can produce positive returns, but overall, we're generally playing defense. Okay. So first of all, great call on the value over last year because there was a really big discrepancy between how growth performed and has, how value did. Clearly, um, energy played a big part on that. But what I'm hearing is that uh, in the near term, stay defensive. But even though you don't need to go shopping now, start making your shopping list mm -hmm. for things that are going to be the first rebound as the inflection points that we've been talking about start taking hold maybe sometime you know, at the end of the second quarter, middle of the year, and so on. So I just want to unpeel a little bit um, the call around tech, right? Because mm -hmm. you mentioned tech within the context of how terrible it did last year, down 30 35%, depending on how you look at it. Um, and, you know, we kind of like tend to expect if you did so poorly in one year, there's got to be some remediation the next year. You've got to be doing a little better, especially because, you know, the tech industry is one where... U.S. Uh, you know investors and just global investors, um, you know, really watching very closely. They have built significant positions in those over the last year. Um, I'm going to guess tie my chance again okay. in the sense that could the outlook turn um, around for this year for tech? Yeah. So I th I think it's still too early on tech. Uh, I mean, I you know again, I, some of these companies were big beneficiaries of the, the, the spending that we saw in the early days of the recovery from COVID. And we're, we're still kind of normalizing from that. Um, you know, we've already seen a slowdown in digital advertising. We've seen a slowdown in e-commerce. I think the next thing that, that you know, we started, we're starting to see is a slowdown in cloud spending. You know, all of those look like there still is a bit more to go because there was so much pull forward of demand uh, in 2020 and 2021. There's just, we have, just have to go through this digestion phase. Uh, and that means probably just slower growth coming from, from some of those companies and right sizing of their cost structures, which is what we're currently seeing. So I think it's still a little bit early uh, to be getting aggressive on, on tech. Um, look, the other thing I would say is that you know, usually when you go through a bear market, the leaders in the prior bull market are not the leaders in the next bull market. So I think that's really important for people to, to keep in mind that it, I think there's sort of a muscle memory to go back into tech because it did so well in, in the, the period before uh, before COVID and, and, and through the early stages of the COVID recovery. But I think it's also important to bear in mind that oftentimes bear markets are a structural break and you see different types of leadership in the next bull market. And that certainly could be a possibility uh, as, we, as we eventually get out of this bear market into, into the next bull market. Um, Jason, I want to bring you back on fixed income. Uh, I, I said in the beginning, you know, rates are higher, so there's more opportunities. Talk to us about how we should think uh, through fixed income um, allocations, right, from uh, both in terms of the duration, in terms of credit risk, and maybe uh, because this is for our U.S. client base, uh, how do we think about the munis, which obviously didn't do so well? <laughs> 
Um, when I look at all the fixed income you know, sectors, I mean, there was really nowhere to hire from investment grade to high yield, to treasuries, to other places, you know, 10% plus declines. Um, you know, this year should hopefully be, um, that should be a gift for this year uh, in terms of starting point. So last year for fixed income, even for like safe fixed income, was a really bad, I mean, the worst year that we would have experienced in our professional careers, maybe even, you know, in our lifetimes, where safe government bonds, high quality corporate credit were down mid-teens. In some cases, you know, a 30-year treasury bond was down more than 30% worse than equities. So a lot of pain last year. The silver lining is that, well, this is because rates went higher, so now the opportunity set, as you alluded to, is more attractive. Yields are higher, which also means for the first time in many years, investors can say, I have a chance to get income without having to take a lot of risk. Given what we discussed in terms of recession risk, you know, potential downturn, we're basically thinking and clients don't need to take a lot of risk, like kind of go up in quality. You can get income doing that. Uh, so that's sort of a general view of like um, higher quality corporate credit, you know, investment grade versus high yield as an example. Uh, when we think about interest rates, given where the 10-year yield is right now, think of it as you know, the key benchmark, there is a risk that near-term it could go a little bit higher. So it's around 3.75%. It could go back to 4% you know, or even above. You know, the risk is probably the Fed does more rather than less hikes. There's uncertainties about how sticky inflation could be. The market is pretty optimistic, at least the bond market, about how much inflation can come down. If that proves wrong, again, rates could go a little bit higher. At the same time, though, I think there's a lot of investors who look at, especially, say, fixed income and say, well, if we do get this recession, one thing that's going to happen is rates will probably fall. The Fed's going to cut rates at some point in time. I want to hide out in still a pretty safe asset class. I will buy Treasury. So I think once you get much above 4%, that becomes sort of a buying opportunity. So, you know, never say never, but I think you, you probably don't get much higher than what we've already seen in this cycle. Uh, you don't need to take in, I said, a lot of credit risk to kind of get that, uh, you know, those opportunities. Uh, bringing in sort of the munis, difficult year for munis last year. Some of it was obviously due to rates in general going higher, but there were also sort of technical dynamics. Uh, a lot of investors took money out of you know, muni funds, and when that happens, that you know, tends to lead to kind of poor performance. So from a technical perspective, that should dissipate. At the same time, the sort of new supply from issuers, you know, we don't expect it to be that large. Also, you know, at least on the state level, local level, you know, fi public finances are reasonably healthy, so credit quality is still in pretty good shape. Deterioration of economic activity probably won't affect that for like another year or two. Um, so again, they also don't have to issue a huge amount. So I think the technical backdrop for munis this year, in addition to the rates out looking better, suggests the munis should you know, perform better. I mean, very low bar to, to clear. So when we think in general in terms of kind of even that kind of interest rate exposure, a bit of a barbell approach. You can buy shorter term treasuries kind of at one end, but also longer you know, uh, maturity, uh, longer duration munis at the other end. That gives you kind of your, your kind of barbell because you don't need to take a lot of you know, kind of long-term risk to get yield. At the same time, if rates decline, that long-term exposure is going to give you a lot of kind of bang for your buck. It will give you that sort of more portfolio diversification. So up in quality kind of and barbell within sort of short treasuries, maybe a longer immunities in a, in a fixed income portfolio. Okay, great. So there's really not a great way to make a transition from municipal bonds to China. So we're just going to just jump there. Um, you know, clearly, you know, it's, it's top of mind. We've been waiting for this, the reopening, so they can give a boost to the, you know, global economic picture. Um, you know, um, we, I mean, it's not just about, obviously, China, right? Several de developments uh, abroad have impacted the macro environment over the past month. Um, in addition to China, we have the surprise moves from the Bank of Japan. Um, 
what do these changes outside of the U.S. mean for the global economy, as well as maybe asset classes like the dollar and the commodities um, that are pretty sensitive to these uh, policy shifts? So my answer, I'll try and travel around the world. Start with China first. Yeah. Uh, you know, the expectation six weeks ago was that China wouldn't drop these kind of zero COVID policies until probably the middle of this year. Most of them have been really dropped already by you know, you know, January 5th. So what we've seen in China is a surge in COVID cases, unfortunately, uh, with, you know, with health consequences. Uh, but it does seem like the data that we have on it uh, suggest maybe that that wave is already kind of peaking out to some extent. And we know from history in the U.S. and other you know, developed markets that these waves, you know, they rise and the things kind of come back pretty quickly and then economic activity starts to normalize. So I think as a result of China making a pretty abrupt change in their COVID policies, it sort of pulls forward kind of the normalization of economic activity there to maybe as soon as later the first quarter or second quarter as opposed to the second half of this year. What we also know, unfortunately, from experience is that COVID waves, they come in waves, meaning there's probably more to potentially happen in China. We shouldn't assume once this is done, it's all clear. Uh, the reopening could be bumpy. So while this sort of pulls things forward, I think there's still a bit of a kind of a bumpy path for China to kind of move forward. But overall, what it suggests is from day one of 2023, the outlook for China is probably better and kind of the outlook for growth kind of accelerating is kind of pulled forward, which is better at the margin for global growth. The knock-on effect, though, is that it could also China's going faster. The demand for commodities goes up a little more inflationary. So that's for, for at least for the U.S. and for Fed, that's not necessarily the most positive development. You mentioned the Bank of Japan. Uh, the Bank of Japan finally made a move on its yield curve control policy, which happened right around Christmas. What it means is they're getting a little less ultra-accommodative, which means rates all sequel and the U.S. could go higher, you know, at the margin. So it's another factor of central banks kind of you know, tightening policy. You travel to Europe. There's sort of a you know mixed story there. Obviously, the situation in Ukraine remains you know you know very you know tense. Uh, it's a source of risks the war there until we get sort of a de-escalation. On the flip side, though, it is like in the Northeast here in the U.S. It's been mild in Europe, uh, so the demand for oil or natural gas has come down. Their economic outlook is looking a bit better. You add all this up, ex-U.S. What it means is maybe the growth outlook for 2023 is a little bit better than we would have anticipated going back say six weeks ago. Uh, that's bullish for commodities, so that's why we like commodities. David alluded to like why we think oil is going to be higher, why we like energy. Generally, when the global economy is accelerating, and this is, um, this is all relative I'm talking here, that's a positive environment for other currencies. So we went neutral in the U.S. dollar. If the rest of the world accelerates while the U.S. is actually slowing down, that in some sense favors you know, um, you know, other currencies versus the dollar. So we're not necessarily calling for dollar weakness, but I think, I think it's safer to say that the dollar in terms of strength you know, the peak is definitely in, and it might be more kind of sideways moving for, for much of this year. So the global developments, short answer, kind of bullish and positive for commodities at the margin, a little more mixed story, I think, and kind of consistent with the neutral view on the dollar. Okay, so your trip around the world uh, basically tells me that the wild cards this year are still sitting mainly out of, outside of the United States. It could be, again, the geopolitics because of the implications for the, um, you know, energy security. It could be the central banks outside of the U.S. Um, even though all eyes might be on Fed first and ECB second, there's really um, more we might just see from the central banks outside of the U.S. this year. With that in mind, uh, it might also be a, a source of maybe some better opportunities outside of the U.S. as well, right? Um, from that perspective, David, I just want to ask you, I mean, uh, when it comes to actually investing abroad, uh, we know many clients are really hesitant 
uh, given all the things that, you know, Jason just talked about, the issues in China and Europe and the war in Ukraine. But what are the opportunities internationally that are, you know, better positioned right now than U.S. equities? Yeah, so I, I think it's important to highlight, Salita, that if you look outside the United States, valuations in, in equity markets are a lot lower than they normally are versus, uh, versus the U.S., right? So, so I think it's important to recognize that there are some probably some just better values outside the U.S. And, and we know that non-U.S. markets usually trade at a discount to the U.S., but they're trading at a steeper discount than they normally do. So right now, our, our preferences are, uh, are for the UK and the Australian market. Um, and there's some commonalities between, between both of them. Both of them have some pretty large commodity exposure. Now, when I say UK, I think it's important to bear in mind, uh, not everybody appreciates this, that the UK market is not very correlated to the UK economy. The UK market has a lot of global companies that happen to be listed in London, uh, but they're not tied to the UK domestic economy. So a lot of energy companies, a lot of consumer staples companies. So that plays into our preference for, uh, for commodities, energy, as well as, as some of those defensives. And it's kind of a similar story for Australia, very commodity dependent uh, type of, uh, of equity market. So um, it's a common theme, I would say. It's sort of what we're doing here in the U.S. We're looking for that defensiveness, but also we, we think there's some opportunities in some of the aspects of the energy space, uh, a, similar, a, a similar sort of thought process with our preferences outside the United States. Okay. Thanks very much. Um, so I think you know, the main takeaway uh, from this conversation is that investors need to be agile uh, this year as we navigate through various inflection points in the near term. As we enter an economic downturn, uh, I think we need to stay defensive, stick to quality allocations, both in equities and fixed income, but we also don't want to miss the potential upside when the market turns. And it's very difficult to predict when this will occur, and this is why uh, we advise our clients to protect against downside rather than sell out of the market completely. And at the same time, um, to have a plan to phase in cash and identify opportunities that can outperform uh, once the economic backdrop improves. And we also, of course, want to build exposure to um, alternative asset classes like hedge funds. We didn't talk about that in length here, but uh, we saw last year that they can deliver returns that are less correlated with broad market moves and also private markets where there might be a bit more adjustment in valuations and some of the vintages. But it can also capitalize on longer-term opportunities better, some of these opportunities in private markets, um, if you're willing to sacrifice some liquidity. So investing across asset classes, uh, but staying selective and definitely staying invested. Um, we have a couple questions um, that came. Uh, well, we have a lot of questions that came, but I'm just going to have all time for only a couple, okay. uh, given that we're almost there. Um, maybe I'll just start with... Um, you know, with, with, with you, David, on the bank side, I mean, mm. big banks have stated severe economic downturn is coming. Why are they more, more optimistic? Uh, pessimistic. Uh, why are they more pessimistic? No. <laughs> yeah. I guess so, it, was a, it was like a wishful thinking. <laughs> no. Why are they pessimistic? So, yeah, I, I think the commentary from bank CEOs, I, I would say it's been, it's been pretty mixed. I, I think most of them are, are signaling a similar outlook that, that we're articulating, that there are some storm clouds on the horizon, 
uncertainty on the horizon, hard to know precisely how it's going to play out. And there are, there's a range of sort of uh, views amongst the, the bank management teams around you know, how bad it could be or, or how, how good it could be or you know, not, not bad it could be. Um, so I, I would say that that's probably, um, you know, I don't think we're so inconsistent with, with sort of you know, how the banks are seeing it. The other thing that they're still talking about, though, is they're not seeing it now. Right. I mean, and I, I don't think we're going to see. In other words, they're not seeing problems today. They're just more concerned about what's going to happen going forward. And I think that's going to be a, a similar message that we're going to get on the, the fourth quarter earnings season, which starts next Friday with the big banks. Um, you know, the unemployment rate is still very low. Jobless claims, Jason was talking about this, they, they haven't started moving up. So if, if consumers have jobs, if jobs are plentiful, people are going to still be spending. And I think the banks are, we're going to see that in the bank's results that uh, consumers are still going to look fairly healthy. But everyone's acknowledging that, that we do have these storm clouds on the horizon. Can I just add, I think David alluded to like what bank CEOs are saying, and that may be the question referring to that. Banks also have economists and strategists kind of giving forecasts. And I think if you look at those, there's also a full range of like people who are saying mild, like actually not a recession, a soft landing. Some are in our mild recession camp, some are hard landing. So there's a full range. I think if you hear pessimism, it might be also like from the media kind of picking the most pessimistic kind of story overall. Um, so I think that's not really representative. I think we're probably kind of a, you know, I think a, a good representation of where the industry is, is kind of thinking in terms of the economic outlook. Okay, thank you. And I have one question for you, uh, Jason. We have a question in terms of how do we define quality because you actually talked about being having quality in the fixed income allocations. We called it defensive, but I, you know, there's still quality, I think, within um, our you know, allocations and equities where we want companies that have quality earnings and all that stuff. Can you maybe just like demystify the word quality as it relates to what is it specifically that we're touching on our portfolios? Sure. I mean, the simple way to think about it, like what is the credit risk or like how credit worthy is it? So the gold standard is, you know, U.S. Treasuries because we don't think the U.S. government would ever default. And everything is sort of evaluated relative to that. The greater the risk essentially of defaulting, the lower the quality is. So when we say up in quality, it means buying government securities, buying high quality, double A, single A corporate credits. Uh, we like agency mortgage-backed securities. Like these are backed by essentially, you know, the government, Fannie and Freddie agencies, avoiding things that are lower quality where the default rates could, you know, 10% of the stock or the, you know, the credits could default. So that's what we mean kind of going up in quality, just kind of lower risk of essentially not getting your money back. And if I could just add to, on the equity side, um, we actually have a, a we have a theme open of, of a list of, of of quality companies, and when we, on the equity side, when we're talking about quality, what we're really talking about is companies that have high profitability, so they earn a high return on their invested capital, and they have they generally tend to have more stability in their cash flows over a business cycle. So these are you know you can almost call them blue chips, right? It's sort of a, a name we don't even talk about anymore, but just you know companies you can kind of sleep sleep well at night with. Um, and, and those those stocks have, have actually have actually outperformed quite nicely uh, over the last uh, several months and, and we think there's there's more to go with that. Great. Thanks very much. Um, I'm watching the time here. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and for putting your trust in us. As always, uh, we encourage you to get in touch with your financial advisors. Uh, if you have any questions on today's conversation and how it relates to your financial picture. Have a wonderful day. 
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.